Today on Ag News Daily. What uh, gene editing allows us to do is to selectively turn off genes. And we just so happened to, to find with PERS, uh, we found the gene uh, that codes for the receptor or the, or the ability of the virus. Well, listeners, that was a great show. Thank you for sticking around with us. We really appreciate you. Oh, this is the beginning. That's right. Yeah, just so you know, listeners, Delaney uh, greeted me by saying, okay, thanks, goodbye. A little turn around this morning. I don't know, Danner. <laughs> but today is Thursday, October 26th. We do have headlines for you. Not to be confused with the end of the episode. We didn't skip you all the way to the end. So you think we should jump into it, Delaney? Yes, we probably should. <clears throat> Well, unfortunately, our friends in North Dakota are expecting as much as 13 inches of snow before this winter storm gets out of their area sometime tomorrow morning. An additional 6 to 10 inches on top of already what is on the ground is forecasted for counties in a line that stretches from the southwestern part of the state all the way to the northeastern area. Light freezing rain is also projected, unfortunately, on the backside of this system. The winter storm Warnings will remain in effect until 6 a.m. local time tomorrow. Here in Iowa, kind of like you were saying before the call, Delaney, showers and isolated storms are possible throughout most of the morning. Though the severe weather isn't expected to be that bad, it's still going to put a halt on our harvest progresses. Cold weather is in the forecast for much of the Midwest this weekend. Colder air moves into the region tomorrow through early next week with some areas only seeing highs in the 30s. I'm going to have to, Delaney, dig out my Carhartts to get an extra layer there. There's a moderate chance of snow accumulation Saturday through early Sunday, but that doesn't look to be very positive to happening. No, it's certainly going to be a cold one. And not that we have anything to complain about compared to the folks in the Dakota Stainer, but I was also the Midwest here is going to see a little bit of snowfall as well, maybe Saturday into Sunday. So yeah, you got to grab your warm winter clothes already here. Yes, that's <laughs> absolutely. But Tanner, this uh, might be a chilly weekend to go visit a pumpkin patch but I saw this story on Successful Farming and thought I'd share. There's a agritourism operation that is partnering with the new a New Mexico FFA chapter, and they've created a really cool pumpkin patch, as well as a really neat farm corn maze. Uh, the this year's theme for the corn maze is Land of the Lost. So for any of you that used to watch that TV show or have kids that watched it. But uh, the McCall family has grown pumpkins on their farm in Mori, Moriarty, New Mexico. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly here. For the last several years and this year, they decided to invite the FFA chapter to help out. Uh, an FFA member says that his dad had an aha moment that this could work for them. He's also uh, a family member of the McCall family. And they've apparently been doing this pumpkin patch for many, many years, Tanner. The farm eventually transitioned into selling truckloads of wholesale pumpkins to school groups and others around the community. And they receive on average 2,000 visitors. But when you think about places growing pumpkins, New Mexico is not one that comes to the top of my list. No, when you were uh, trying to state the town's name, I was waiting for what state followed and did not expect New Mexico. Wanted to give everybody an update. We do have 
A Speaker of the House, Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson, was elected as the 56th Speaker on Wednesday, yesterday. This ended a three-week vacancy. Agriculture industry groups are now reacting to what this appointment means. So the Louisiana Representative, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, and a trade group, is continuing to watch, looking to monitor what had been happening over the last couple of weeks. Their vice president said it's good to put the country first. We need leaders that have the courage to reject toxic political policies. His tenure reaching across as the minority leader of the Hakeem Jeffries, um, or working with Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader across the aisle, is going to be very important. They're expected to see equipment manufacturers are looking forward to working with him to advance their policies. Of course, we saw the Farm Bureau Federation put out their press release. It says that he is a friend of Farm Bureau, got the award multiple times. America's families are relying on him as speaker to focus on the pressing needs, especially the passage of the Farm Bill. So Zippy Duvall said the Farm Bill provides that certainty for their the farmers to grow the nation's food, and they are confident that they will work with Speaker Johnson. The Meat Institute put out a very short press release saying that their members are a critical part of the food chain and they are ready to work with the new speaker. They wanted to address key challenges right away, especially persistent labor shortages. And as you continue to look down that list, Delaney, and overall, it seems like this is an okay choice for those in agriculture. It doesn't seem like there's any strong opposition from the ag community for Republican Mike Johnson's appointment to Speaker of the House. Well, that's big news. I missed that headline altogether, Tanner, so I'm really glad you're on top of it this morning. Hey, uh, that's what I'm here for. Well, right in line with some of that news, this is just prior, I'm assuming, to the Secretary being or the speaker being announced, but Secretary Vilsack on Tuesday highlighted some various challenges facing the agricultural industry ahead of us. One of those, of course, was at that time an absence of a speaker. But he said with those looming uncertainties, he's noting that there is a large possibility the Farm Bill extension will be longer than most are even expecting as of right now. He also said to address some of these challenges, the USDA will utilize funds from the CCC or Commodity Credit Corporation, a whopping $2.3 billion in CCC funding from the last fiscal year will now be directed towards boosting international markets for farmers with a particular focus, he said, on specialty crop products many of whom are in small to medium-sized farm categories. He also said high-value products like wine and whiskey will also benefit from this additional funding, and they're going to additionally allocate $100 million to address phytosanitary and technical trade barriers for some of those specialty crops. He said this funding is going to take several years to roll out and be fully utilized, And he explained that the funds will not be required to be spent within a single fiscal year, but will remain fully available until fully utilized. They are aiming to establish different regulations for the programs by the end of 2023 or early 2024. But it does sound like, to some extent, Tanner, uh, growers will be able to apply for some of these funds, as well as the USDA will be using them for marketing and promotions and other purposes there on their front as well. Well, that's good. Uh, California's lemon growers could be on that list in order to get some help there. 
I never thought, Delaney, when we started reporting Ag News Daily together that I would spend this much time talking about lemons, but the uh, infection, the fungus that is going through Ventura County is causing more ripple down effects. So I wanted to give our listeners another update. The coastal lemon growers are being squeezed since their production is being quarantined. Their unprofitable returns for their fruit is going to be longer extended because extra regulatory burdens in their area are going to cause additional costs. The HLB, lethal citrus disease, is sweeping across their area of Southern California. But now coastal growers are feeling the cuts of imported fruit into their region. Normally, they have outlets that are local for them to sell off their product to. Unfortunately, now they fear that these new connections of imported fruit are going to remain permanent. And when they have next year's crop, would not have a market to sell to. So like I said, they could be on that list, Delaney, to help with these specialty crops. Through all detections, the fruit is continuing to be monitored. That five-mile quarantine zone stretches into commercial citrus farms and two citrus packing plants. The quarantine rules have a place of mitigation measures that are aimed at slowing the spread of HLB. The president of the California Citrus Mutual says the quarantine rules add costly procedures within this zone, and those product protocols have to be met if the growers want to be set up to sell next year's crops, so we'll continue to keep an eye on there. Obviously, it's going to require additional labor. It's going to require additional costs to measure these rules. But ultimately, it's important, just kind of like with avian flu. If we can quarantine and stop it now, it provides a lot more opportunity for those in the future. Well, Tanner, we had some historic landmark signatures on a deal earlier this week that we failed to report on. So I apologize to our listeners, but at the World Food Prize earlier this week, we saw a historic grain buying ceremony between the U.S., which included, of course, former ambassador to China, Terry Branstead, and Chinese buyers that signed now the first major contract signing since before the pandemic, Tanner. China signed a really large framework deal to purchase large quantities of agricultural products. The deal is non-binding, unfortunately, and lacking some specifics, but it is a step in the right direction. Uh, As we look at China's economic policy, they have also gone as far as to offer 1 trillion yuan in sovereign bonds to help stimulate their economy, which was a surprise move to those in legislative session there, as this has been a big amendment to the Chinese budget for the first time in more than a decade. Uh, This is also, perhaps analysts are suspecting, an indication of how serious China's current economic problems are, that it felt like it had to step outside of their normal operating budget to initiate this process. Tanner, maybe you can share a little light into what a sovereign bond is and why China would want to potentially use it. I think I understand, but you know, you probably have a better handle on that. I don't know if I have much additional understanding there uh, as far as that goes, but I can certainly look into that and probably have something by the end of this episode. Wanted to still stick with some Chinese headlines. It looks like they are going to provide roughly $2 million in humanitarian aid to Gaza. They will provide $2.05 million, according to the statement their International Development Cooperative Agency put together. It comes on top of another million dollars in aid that they had already sent 
Israel's military said it carried out a targeted raid overnight. This is the first uh, of their plan to potentially have a ground offensive following those deadly attacks that started October 7th. Pressure is building in the international community to get Israel to allow that desperately needed aid into the Gaza region. UN relief workers are stating that it will have to halt its aid operations if they don't get fuel delivered. So amid those diplomatic spats, there is a lot to get figured out there as well. But I wanted to give an ethanol update. It is Thursday. Output rose again to the highest level in two months. Production increased to 1.04 million barrels per day, up from the 1.035 last week. The stockpiles are also continuing to grow or reversing their growth at least to 21.398. That's up from 21.112. I'm going to get some clarity here on those sovereign bonds while you uh, continue with the news. All right. Happy to do so, Tanner. Uh, In some other headlines here, as we look at retail fertilizer prices, eight of the major fertilizers continued to climb the third week of October here with Anhydrous once again leading the way. Anhydrous climbed 6% over the last week here on average to $809 per ton, which of course, anything more than a 5% jump one way or the other is uh, considered a significant move, according to DTN. We also saw MAP increase and UAN. uh, And the other three fertilizers did have moves, but were not considered significant moves there. So all in all, Tanner, we're starting to see things creep slowly back up the other way here after quite some time seeing positive moves trading lower. Um, but that certainly will impact, I'm sure, how some growers think about fall field work here as they head into wrapping up harvest. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And uh, it it doesn't look like there's a lot of extra incentive for those sovereign bonds, Delaney. The most flexibility is that it can be done in either currency of each party. So whether that is uh, a trade dollar power, you know, whatever it looks like for the value of the combination of the countries that are working on these bonds, or if they're held locally, ultimately just provides another way to shift debt on their behalf. So uh, just another tool rather than exchanging direct payment or taking on additional debt to be able to get transactions moving forward. Awesome. That's kind of what I made it sound like in the article I was taking a look at here, but wanted just a little clarification on that. Absolutely. But that's all I've got for today. Well, Tanner, I think I am out of news here as well, aside from taking a look at the markets as we head into the opening session here today. Grains are trading um, mostly higher across the board. December corn up just a penny this morning at 481. Soybeans up four and three quarter cents at 1293. Chicago December wheat up six and a quarter cents at 574 and three quarters. Spring wheat in the December contract up four pennies at six fifty-three, and December spring wheat up five and three quarters cents at seven twenty-six and a half. Livestock certainly have been having a roller coaster week this week, Tanner. As today, today we head into some more positive territory after they finished higher on the board yesterday. 
December live cattle yesterday added 80 cents. We'll open this morning at a buck 79.42. November feeder cattle clawed their way or trying to claw their way back after a limit down losses earlier this week up $2.62.5, opening this morning at 238.05. And December lean hogs up a dollar twelve and a half yesterday on the board. Opening this morning at 67.50. Tanner, I'm really excited about today's conversation. If our listeners will recall back to a couple of weeks ago, we shared a story about a few organizations working on a PERS resistant gene edited pig. So we're going to dive into that a little bit more today with a great fellow veterinarian and friend of mine who works at Iowa State University. So let's turn over to that conversation with Dr. Chris Rodemaker. Well, as we think about the time of year when we're talking about disease and also how to prevent disease, we're chatting today with Dr. Chris Rodemaker, the Associate Director of the Iowa Pork Industry Center, to chat PERS and other potential issues coming down the pork pipeline. Chris, good morning, and thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Chris, before we dig into PERS, and more specifically the PERS-resistant pig that we reported on the podcast recently, let's dig a little bit more into your background, if you will. Yeah, you bet. So, uh, born and raised in southern Minnesota, I went to uh, University of Minnesota, graduated with my DVM degree in 1998. I went back home and uh, helped a neighbor of mine start up a company called New Fashion Pork, and I worked there as uh, 11 years as Director of Veterinary Services, I had the opportunity to join the uh, Smithfield food side on the live animal side as the director of uh, production uh, improvement. So I served in that capacity for about five and a half years. And then I landed in my current role as um, uh, both the associate director of the Iowa Pork Industry Center, but I also serve as a clinical professor at Iowa State College of Veterinary Medicine. And I've been there since December of 2014. So Chris, obviously you're here for a conversation on a new genetically, am I going to say it correctly, genetically modified animal? Yeah. So hog specifically. So the interesting thing about that is, you know, words are powerful, right? So actually they're gene edited, right? And there's a little bit of a connotation and an important differentiation between genetically modified and gene edited. So uh, the current uh, technology is uh, called CRISPR-Cas9, developed by uh, Dr. Randy Prather in his lab at the University of Missouri, and then uh, co-developed with uh, the Genus uh, uh, company, also known as PIC, one of the predominant swine genetics companies uh, around the globe. So actually with gene editing, so just to make that uh, differentiation a little bit clear, Gene editing is actually just um, turning genes on and off into the genome, where, whereas genetically modified animals, uh, in that sense, you tend to be adding DNA into, um, uh, into, a gene, into a genome of an animal or a plant. So this is a little bit different in that is there, we're just editing the genes, just turning on, turning off. And actually, these type of gene edited animals, uh, they're, they're naturally found in nature. What uh, gene editing allows us to do is to, uh, as I mentioned before, selectively turn off genes. And we just so happened to, to find with PERS, uh, we found the gene uh, that codes for the receptor or the, or the ability of the virus to, uh, to actually attach to the cells. 
So just kind of a little bit of a step back of biology 101, viruses per, uh, per se by themselves cannot do anything okay, unless they attach to the host, invade the host cells, and then that's how they replicate themselves. So they create more copies of themselves and they continue to do that over and over again. So if the virus has no ability to attach to the to the cell, and it really only attaches to one specific cell line in swine. Uh, if they have no ability to attach, they can't replicate themselves. So essentially what they were able to do is to go in and do some gene editing on pigs, turn off the genes um, for that receptor. So they were able to produce some pigs that don't have the receptor for PERS. And then what they would do to test that is they would um, uh, artificially infect those pigs with PERS and nothing would happen. They couldn't recover any PERS. The pigs wouldn't get sick. They couldn't uh, see any evidence of infection, uh, either by animals getting sick or even by looking at antibodies, saying that the, the pigs not only got sick, but they didn't get infected. Their body didn't show an immune reaction to it, which they normally would produce antibodies to it. So pretty revolutionary from that standpoint in that uh, with all the different things that we have for PERS, we have vaccines and and things like that. They're really all designed to mitigate the impact of PERS. This is the first thing in the 30 some odd years we've been battling with PERS that actually completely prevents infection. Yeah, it's it's fascinating the technology they're developing around this. And I'm glad you made that distinction between gene editing and gene modification. I think that really helps set the stage here. But Chris, when you look at PERS or porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, why do you, first of all, maybe we should dig in a little bit more for those of our listeners who are not in the livestock space about what PERS does to the herd, but also why this has such a huge economic impact and you think was the focus of this research by PIC and others. Yeah, so PERS by far and away is the most economically important disease, certainly here in the United States and in the globe. You know, the estimates here alone in the United States vary somewhere on an annualized basis, somewhere between $600 million to $1 billion of impact uh, to swine producers. And uh, like I say, it's a virus that's been around for about 30 years. Um uh, the the problem with it is a little bit in its name, right? So in many diseases, they they infect or affect animals for a short time period, and then and then generally, you know, the problem is is resolved and and life moves on. The problem with PERS is um, it can infect both uh, pregnant animals, and that's usually where we see most of the issues start is they will get into the breeding farms. So they'll infect pregnant animals and they can cause things such as uh, increases in abortion, some sow deaths, uh, in increases in um, stillborn and mummified piglets. And, and a little bit of the problem with it is, is a unique feature of the virus in that it actually fools the body into thinking that it produces an antibody which is actually good for diagnosis, but not good for producing an antibody that actually kills the virus. It's almost kind of like a, a, a dummy antibody. So it takes the pig a really long time to recognize it and actually then finally eliminate it. So uh, it can uh, infect that herd for a long period of time. And the unfortunate thing about it then is those sows can pass that along to their piglets, either in gestation while uh, 
while they're pregnant or even after they're born. And then those pigs go out into, uh, get weaned off their mothers, go out into the nursery and finishing or wean to finish operations. And it's the same sort of uh, scenario where they get more of what's called the, it's reproductive and respiratory syndrome. So they get a respiratory disease. And um, maybe the best way to explain to people, it's it's an awful lot like um, AIDS in humans. You know, you, you've heard a lot in the past that people usually don't die from AIDS. They die to secondary diseases that their immune system would normally um, uh, be able to fight off. So it's somewhat similar in pigs in that uh, the PERS virus itself attacks a lot of the very important immune cells. So the, the pigs become very susceptible to a lot of other diseases that they would normally um, fight off. And same sort of situation is it's uh, that virus takes a very long time for those uh, individual animals to clear 60 to 90 days in uh, some uh, some cases, and then those pigs become reservoirs infections for other pigs that can be spread by people, can be shed through the air even, and, and you know, particularly this time of year, we tend to see it more because as soon as it gets cool and damp out, the virus survives for a lot longer time period outside, outside the pigs as well, so it becomes a situation for potential spread, you know, with, you know, manure-related activities or transportation-related activities, um, and like you say, we have some vaccines that mitigate some of the uh, impact of the infection, but doesn't block or prevent infections. So, you know, it's it's really a, a challenge for our biosecurity uh, to, you know, to try to prevent infection. And, and the, the other unfortunate thing about it is, is we've gotten better at creating, uh, you know, vaccines and, you know, management steps to limit the uh, spread of the virus or eliminating the virus from the breeding herds. Uh, we have uh, almost in a, a Darwin's theory of evolution, we have created more virulent viruses. We've forced that that virus to mutate and change, become more infectious, uh, produce a lot more virus particles and ones that can survive for longer periods of time, you know, hiding out uh, in, in uh, recovered herds even. So we've kind of selected for viruses that are tougher to deal with as well. So, you know, you'd think we'd be getting better. And I think we have from a management standpoint, but the virus is almost out, uh, out evolutioning us. <laughs> hey, I, I really appreciate your ability to articulate what's going on and explain that to our listeners. The article that we reported on uh shed light on the fact that there's regulatory approval needed for this new technology. Can you expand upon how that process works and what the status is? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is being a relatively new technology. Uh, it's got to go through the approval process. And and uh, because uh, as I understand it, there's been some debate back and forth, whether USDA is is in charge of it because it's an animal product or FDA is in charge of it because we're producing food. But They've turned in all the proper, you know, documentation. They've got to do all the different, uh, you know, environmental impact studies and uh, make sure that, you know, they're not passing along any other traits when they create these gene edited animals. So, you know, PIC has been working on that very closely uh, with the government and with FDA for several years. And I think they've, uh, they were reported this fall that they've kind of turned in the last of those um uh, dossiers that they have to file in here uh, uh, just about a month ago. So they're really pushing and hoping to get approval 
in uh, sometime in 2024 for this. Now, you know, this is there are this is not the first gene edited livestock that are out there. It would certainly be the first one in swine. Uh, you know, there was approval for uh, a gene edited product in salmon. And I know uh, here within the last year or so, you know, they uh, approved uh, slick uh, slick coat uh, gene edited animals for cattle to help them tolerate uh, heat better. So, you know, we're hoping some of those have helped to pave the way um, uh, for this product. Now, uh, we've got, I know there's been a little bit of discussion and a little bit of press lately about uh, a country approving those products. And that will be important as well, because in in the swine industry, we do export about 25 to 30 percent of the product that we produce. So not only does, uh, you know, it's PIC working on uh, getting the product approved here, but they're having to work with all the major uh, export countries that the U.S. pork is exported to, to get them to approve to take it to. So we're not getting into a situation where they're going to have to try to segregate product and only ship it to certain countries. Their hope really is to try to get uh, universal acceptance to the technology. So it just becomes uh, part of the standard uh, uh, package of pork that can be uh, exported from the United States. Chris, the other question mark, I think there is still about uh, producer adoption of a PERS edited pig. Is that going to be something that is economically feasible for a lot of folks to tackle? Or what does the adoption process look like in your mind here for U.S. producers? Yeah, that uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it'll depend on several factors. Obviously, price being being the first. You know, these animals won't will come with a you know price tag, and I'm I'm sure that's all being you know calculated and figured out. What's the you know cost of pers uh, pers negative pig? And there's going to be a lot of savings both in production efficiencies, uh, but also in uh, you know drastically less antibiotic usage, and um, you know even looking at you know uh, from a carbon market standpoint, you know, they're so much, those animals will be so much more efficient getting to market too. So, you know, that price matrix is, I'm sure is, is yet to be worked out and finalized. The other thing about this is obviously this process takes place and it's expensive to do that process. So what you're going to wind up having is you're going to wind up having some animals that have the, uh, uh, the gene turned off or are PERS resistant uh, and there's probably not going to be enough of those, obviously, just to sell right off the bat. So they'll they'll be. Uh, I think a lot of producers are waiting for what does the dissemination plan of those genetics look like. And there's been some preliminary discussions about um, if you wanted to roll your herd over, you know, how could you do it? Obviously, the use of artificial insemination will probably be very important with that. Um, particularly uh, things such as post-cervical artificial insemination, just because you use uh, a lower dose of semen to do that. So you can spread those PERS resistance uh, genetics uh, further. The other unique thing about that is, and this kind of goes back to genetics 101 and your uh, Mendelian squares or the Punnett squares that they call them, for an animal to be truly resistant, they have to be uh, uh, double zygote recessive for that, which means both animals have to contribute that gene to it. So there may be a situation where, you know, producers will have to get some semen, which would be the double height, uh, zygote recessive, but they'll have to create their own female. So they'll have to go through a couple of generations and, and do testing 
um, you know, to identify those that contain, you know, uh, both genes uh, before they're able to establish a truly PERS resistant herd. So even if we get uh, acceptance of the product next year and, and start to disseminate those genetics, you know, to say we'll, you know, truly have, you know, we'll have some herds, but before the but really, we start to see from a, a major industry impact, it's still going to be measured measured in years. Hey, we appreciate you taking the time to explain as much as this could in our short window of time frame. Uh, if our listeners want to learn more or discover more themselves, what's the best way for them to keep tabs on this process? Yeah, there'll be a, a lot uh, going on. I was just looking. I, I, I know the, the latest thing is they're looking at and have found some gene edited chickens that have been resistant to high path avian influenza. So really just in a lot of the social media stuff, there's a fair amount out there. Um, uh, I'm sure if they Google genus or PIC, uh, they'll, you know, they can follow along there. I would say with a lot of the stuff, honestly, you know, when that approval comes through, there'll be there'll be a fair amount of uh, press releases and, you know, we'll be keeping tabs of it from an Iowa pork industry center standpoint. You know, our, our interest will be is trying to work with our partners and IPIC to, to try to help educate producers best about, you know, looking at that, how do they make that decision from a dollar value? Uh, you know, what does that return look like? And then what does that dissemination plan look like? You know, let's say if the, all they can get is, semen and you can get to access to that at ipic.iastate.edu awesome well thanks again we really appreciate you hanging out yeah i appreciate it thanks for having me on today well, that was a fun conversation it almost could have been a friday or a tech tuesday what a versatile conversation i know i had a conversation Oof, that's lots of conversations delaney with my father and uh, he felt the impact of this as it continues to move forward would be extremely huge for the hog industry. Yes, this really would be a big, big, big move. And I think there's more technology like this coming down for the industry. Absolutely. Listeners, but thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back again tomorrow. So don't go too far. But for today, what do you say? Should we let them go? Let's let them go.